back to Excited, episode 191. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PetroPlanPuppets.com. It's acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fooliman? I am none too shabby. How about you? I'm doing all right. Um, the Leafs are also doing all right, and, and that contributes significantly to my doing all right. They are doing remarkably all right for the situation that they're in. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we might as well just get right into our first segment, which yes. is all of our defensemen are dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to recap, Jake Muzzin has a spinal injury. He's out until at least February when he will be reevaluated. Um, from the general tenor of the conversation around him, I'm not sure I expect Jake Muzzin to play in the NHL again, and maybe he shouldn't. Yeah, it, I mean, it certainly didn't sound positive. Yeah, we were having those quality of life after retirement conversations. That's always a worrying thing. Mm-hmm. And if that's kind of in the air for Jake Muzzin, I really hope that he doesn't feel any pressure to come back if that would be at risk. So, yeah, we'll see. Uh, you know, mentally, I'm kind of classing him as retired. Uh, TJ Brody has an oblique injury. Uh, his return timeline is unclear. There was some hope that it might be around this time. But then he didn't come on the road trip that they're currently on. Mm -hmm. Um, The road trip has one more stop in Detroit tomorrow night. And then they come home on Wednesday against the San Jose Sharks. I'm assuming he's not going to pop right back in for that one. So I'm guessing next weekend earliest. But obviously these timelines are very flexible. Uh, Next up on the injury brigade is Morgan Riley, who suffered a knee injury against the New York Islanders this week. Uh, He's been LTIR'd which implies that he's out at least another three weeks, probably more. Um, And then Jordy Ben, who was not originally one of the Leafs' top six defenders, but who was showing quite well as he got more ice time, related to the first three injuries we discussed, uh, suffered an upper body injury and is considered week to week. Mm -hmm. Obviously, week to week is broad, but it suggests not anytime soon. Yes. So there we have it. Um... Probably the three best Leafs defensemen in many eyes, um, certainly as of last season, probably would have been considered Rowley, Brody, and Muzzin. Mm-hmm. Um, they're obviously all out. And then Ben was sort of a steadying presence and he's out. And it's kind of remarkable that the Leafs have held up as well as they have. Um, and that's really been the story this week. You know, the Leafs have come away with um, one very frustrating loss to the New York Islanders, but then three pretty big wins that were all challenging in their way. Um, they snapped the New Jersey Devils' win streak. They're, like, still the only team to beat the Devils in the past month or so. <laughs> yeah, because the Devils, I think, have rattled off a couple wins since then. Yeah, and um, already I'm seeing a lot of Devils saying that the streak is still going in their hearts because they feel that they were cruelly and unjustly deprived of the win against Toronto by malign referees. We'll talk about that later in this episode. Uh, But yeah, that was a big win. Um, Good win against Minnesota. Good win against Pittsburgh. The truth is they're all impressive unless you're playing the Arizona Coyotes at this point because the Leafs are playing with an extremely questionable defense group. And it's basically Mark Giordano and friends at this point. Um, Justin Hall being the most prominent among his friends. Yeah. Well, and I, Hall has been much maligned uh, this year. In, in the early stages of this year, his pairing with Muzzin was not performing particularly well. Certainly not at the level that we would sort of need them to be. And Hall has, you know, been a perpetual whipping boy um, for, for Leafs Nation because he's like... I feel like fans always want to dump on the most expendable person who plays mm-hmm. a significant role because then you can like sort of delude yourself into thinking it's just that person yeah right um it's also why alex griffith gets, gets a lot of crap um <laughs> quite a lot of crap yeah. yeah and i think our position on hall has been pretty um pretty consistent which is that he's a good he's a good five yeah who can do spot duty with a better player in a top four role and, and like actually be a part of a pretty good team. Right. It doesn't, and that's like an important thing. The ability to play up is, is an important thing. Um, he's been, he's been very, very good as of late. Yeah. And 
whatever you think of him, I don't think the Leafs are contemplating dealing him right now. Because <laughs> he's one of the few defensemen who are still alive. Yeah. So, yeah, um, you know, definitely we're wrong a lot on this podcast. And sadly, we're often confronted with evidence of that wrongness. But I feel pretty good about how we've steadily said Hall is a five. He can play on a second pairing that does tough minutes if he's not the best player on the pairing. I think that's gotten borne out a lot of times. His pairing with TJ Brody before Brody went down was working well. His pairing with Mark Giordano, who is still, incredibly, a top four caliber defenseman at 39, is working decently. And it doesn't mean that Hall's a superstar now, because I don't want to go crazy in the upward direction any more than I want to go crazy downward, but he has been quite functional. And I think you have to give him some credit. Um, and Rasmus Sandin and Timothy Liljegren... Um, as a pairing have had their ups and downs last night they had a very strong game they did they were they were actually um the most played leafs uh pairing so they, they were our, in some sense de facto first pairing um yesterday typically in the last few games prior uh it was it was Giordano hall as you would expect but sandy and Logan have have done quite well um i think people I think there's lots of criticism about Sandine, including us, for, mm-hmm. for his relatively poor start to the season. Yeah. Um, some of the criticism I see about him, I think, is misplaced, though. I think people often... So people, I think, correctly say that his in-zone defending is not really his, his strongest suit. His strongest suit is his ability to transition the puck, right? Mm-hmm. Like, when he gets the puck in his defensive zone, I'm, like, pretty confident in him. Yeah. But I think people take that to mean... He is not, because he is a small and not that athletic by NHL Sanders defenseman, people take it to mean like his in-zone defending is bad because he can't like physically move people because he doesn't engage physically or things like that. That's not really the case. Sandine is very willing to engage physically. He doesn't play small, yeah. right? Um, yeah. Seems like he perpetually has like three or four cuts on his head, on his face uh, from like roughing it up. And, and we saw him, you know, leap into the defensive i think was it austin matthews in one of the games this week he fought oliver wallstrom on monday night against the islanders in a uh featherweight bout i guess i would call it and god bless him for that but yeah and i mean well that's not a even matchup like wallstrom is is significantly better fighter than than sandy (laughs) wallstrom also um god bless him beat up tony d'angelo recently so um, you know what so salutes to him absolutely But yeah, anyway, so, but uh, credit to Sandine because he, you yeah, know, he so, played his art out this week after an episode where I'm sure he knew he was being called out by Back to Excited. Oh, yeah, I, I, I bet, I yeah. bet he, you know, we gave him some bulletin board material and he responded. Yeah, I'm sure we were in the dressing room on, uh, on the whiteboard. Uh, <laughs> money, for money on the board, get, get those terrible <laughs> podcast people to shut up. <laughs> These fucking nerds and their weird voices went in on us and we're not having it. No, but yeah, it's been. An encouraging week, and you do wonder if he's finding his feet after maybe an interrupted training camp due to a contract dispute. Um, Part of it is also, I yeah. mean, the, is just that he's picking the puck out of his net less. Like we see him do that. This yeah. is a constant thing that we have to like fight against in our and how we view players. Of, um, I think maybe next week I want I want to do a deep dive into, into Pontus Holmberg, who, who who's having a nice little star turn. And I have to like mentally think how much of how much I like Holmberg is that I just don't see him ever get sword on. Yes. However, that is a big part of his job. So um, I, I haven't done it the last couple of years, and that's probably a social improvement, frankly, because I'm not that great at prospect writing. But I used to participate in the top 25 under 25 at PPP. And, you know, I would just volunteer to do a different name every year because I said I didn't want to write the same thing. And sometimes that would mean I would end up writing up players like Pontus Holmberg. And boy, did I have to struggle to find some things to say about Pontus Holmberg. You do not know how hard it is to evaluate a Swedish hockey league fourth liner who does not have a lot of scoring highlights. But one thing that came up again and again, uh, and this was before he'd uh, ever played in North America, um, was that his coach really liked him. And there were all of these quotes that I ran through Google Translate and that occasionally made sense about how um, he was just sort of an old, reliable player. And the coach said, you know, when I need a line that I can just trust to do the right thing, I put out Pontus Holmberg. 
And so in the article, I basically said, like, look, this guy doesn't seem to have a lot of scoring talent. And I stand by that, even though he did rock one in the net last night. Uh, but if your coaches like you in that way, that's a good sign. And early returns are that Keith seems to like him a fair bit as well. Keith had a quote um, where he said, normally with to the effect of normally with rookies, we, we spend you know a fair bit of time with them, show them their their tape and see like so they can see their mistakes and they can see how to improve them. But with homework, we haven't really been able to find many mistakes. Yeah, that is high praise from your. It really coach. is, especially yeah. for like a. I, Especially for a rookie who, you know, if homework's going to have a long NHL career, it's going to be as this type of guy. Yeah. Right? Um, it's going to be as a defensive responsible fourth slash maybe third line center if his, his offense, you know, grows. Uh, and, and he has to be, like, he has to be, I don't mean this in a bad way, he has to be a teacher's pet. Coaches have yeah. to love him. I, I think that as a general rule... If you are a top six caliber scoring player, you can be so good that your coach has to play you even if he doesn't like you. For the third and the fourth lines, the talent disparities are too small that you can afford to be unpopular with your coach. You have to be the kind of guy that he wants to put out there. And I'm not guaranteeing Holmberg anything, but it is an encouraging sign for his career as a fourth liner, which is what I think he's going to be, that Keefe is talking about him in these terms. We've yeah. gotten a little bit far afield of the defense question, but I think that yeah. is a big factor is that the defense is held up because good defensive forwards have been I, I, doing that, the jobs. That's something I want to I want to mention as well. But just quickly going back to Sandine, I guess it's it's sort of interesting. You know, he he started playing with with uh, Louisgren after after I forget the order of the injuries that they occur now, but after one of the Leafs injuries, and they were you know at that point they were still playing kind of like a sheltered ish role, I believe. Uh, and then now that's kind of gone out the window because the Leafs simply don't have enough defensemen to to shelter Sandy and Lilligren, right? Because they, they they also want to shelter Mete and, and Hollowell, right? Just not, or, I mean, shelter has a negative connotation, but what I mean by that is like not throw them to the wolves. Uh, and interestingly, Sandy and Lilligren's, you know, on-ice numbers have actually improved as they've gone up in, in minutes and against tougher competition. And there, uh, there's like a large degree of randomness there as we all know and a large degree of impact from the forwards right off you know the counterpoint to okay you're playing better opposition is you're also getting to play more with matthews need Tavares, and martyr yes and that's probably more impactful for your numbers you know a mm-hmm. big thing that we've seen time and time again in stats quality of teammates outweighs quality of competition yeah but at the same time like you know it, it They've they've done what they needed to do for the Leafs to to survive in these last few games, right? And the Leafs are not blowing teams uh, out of the water or anything like that. I don't think it'd be really fair to expect them to do that with, you know, their top defense being their five six or their four, sorry their four and their six from the start of the year. Yeah, like it things have changed, and while we don't anticipate Muzzin will return necessarily, you have a frankly an NHL top pairing. In Morgan Riley and TJ Brody, that will come back to you at some point. Um, although there has been some chatter suggesting that, gosh, doesn't the team look so good with Riley out? Isn't it weird that we don't miss him as much? And I, I think that that's a much larger conversation. I think Morgan Riley gets so underrated at times, for sure. Yeah, I, I go back and forth with Riley myself, right? He, he's obviously incredibly talented and skilled and his offensive gifts are pretty undeniable. At the same time, I would not have given him the contract that the Leafs gave him this yeah. offseason. Mm-hmm. Or I guess that last season is when they extended him, wasn't it? Um, yeah. So, you know, I, but even, even you know, I would consider myself relatively lower on Riley, the player, mm-hmm. than most of the Leafs fan base. And even still, like, this three games is not remotely enough time. No. To, and, and to this is any we, judgments at all. Let's zoom out just a tiny bit and be like, mm, is it good to have a, whatever you think of him, two, three defensemen missing entirely? No, the team is better with him on it. I do think that it's encouraging how the Leafs have rallied around. I also just find it kind of funny that we talk about Sandy and Lilligren as kind of this skill-ish, not-so-big pairing. And because the next two guys up at this point are Mete and Hollowell... Um, we sort of inserted an even smaller pairing behind them. <laughs> so yeah. by relative size, they're now like the middle one uh, on the roster. Um, yeah, but like it's been encouraging seeing the team come forward 
with complete defensive efforts in the absence of several key defensemen. And that's the <laughs> takeaway from this week. Um, however, it's not a good thing if you have to rely on Victor Mede and Matt Hollowell to an ex- to a great extent, I don't think. You would still like to have some insurance. And the Leafs made a minor move that may... There's a chance it doesn't turn out to be totally minor um, to acquire a defenseman to shore up some of that depth. And they got right defenseman Connor Timmins. Um, so Connor Timmins is a guy that you might remember from his draft year if you were really paying close attention. I remember he was well thought of at that point. He wound up going 32nd overall, which was the start of the second round at that time. Um, he was well thought of until injuries kind of derailed him. He suffered a major concussion and a major knee injury. And they took him off what seemed like a track towards being an NHL defenseman. So he hasn't played that many games, even though he's now 24. Um, he's a natural right defenseman. Got some range. He's 6'2". He has good mobility and good puck movement. And people speak highly of his ability to kind of keep the pressure on in the offensive zone. You can easily see how that might fit well with the Toronto Maple Leafs, who like to push on the cycle and have their defenseman pinch a little bit. Seems like a nice fit there. Uh, he is also inevitably a former Sault Ste. Marie Greyhound. <laughs> I, what do you say at this point? I, I mean, I, I, t- <laughs> I tweeted like a joking, like sort of fed up expression with all the, the Sioux players. And, and it was pointed out to me correctly that, and, and this isn't something I'm unaware of. And, and to be fair, that was a shit post on my part, but uh, the, the Sioux players that the Leafs have acquired have generally been pretty good. Yes. And that's something that we probably have to keep keeping in mind is that while this is a weird pattern and it's an undeniable pattern, there's a familiarity bias. Um, it does seem that Kyle Dubas is using the additional familiarity that he has with these players well, which is what you want him to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say, just in case it's not clear at some point, by the way, I think this is a good move because the yeah, cost I mean, I... was extremely modest and right. it's a flyer. So yeah, so I mean, the reason Arizona did this is it's basically as a favor to Timmons. Um, they based, they felt he was not going to... They didn't have room for him on their roster. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, if you don't have upspot on Arizona's roster, it's like, you know, it raises some questions, some valid questions. Um, but regardless, they didn't have a spot for him on, on their roster. They felt he was not going to pass their waivers. Might as well get something for him. Yeah, so it works for um, them in the sense that they get some kind of asset. The asset they got back is Curtis Douglas who is an AHL forward who has intrigued people because he's six foot nine. Six nine all game, baby. Yeah, there is no point at which he ceases to be six nine, I guess unless he falls to the ice. But he was off to a slow start with the Toronto Marlies this season. One assist in 13 games. That ain't ideal for any kind of scoring forward. Uh, he was about a point every two games last season with them. He's 22. There is an outside chance that he marchments which is a verb that I'm now putting forward. Um, But I wouldn't bet on it, really. And as much as it's fun to have a very large tree on your hockey team to stand in front of the opposing net, uh, there were a lot of things going on in his game that needed work. Maybe he'll put it in and he will emerge at 23, 24, 25 as a beautiful, gigantic butterfly. But I think that the price to acquire Connor Timmons is fine. Um, I should say I described him as an AHL forward. That's a reflection of where he's playing and my perception of his talent level. He is on an NHL contract, which means it was one in one out for Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, regarding Connor Timmins, I like this as a flyer. This is a guy who was at the bottom of his value. He was yeah. just at the point where he wasn't expected to clear waivers. He's not that far above it. Yeah. I think you got to keep expectations pretty low here. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so we've alluded to, to the injuries before, but basically he's played around 40 NHL games spread out over four different seasons. Mm-hmm. The largest chunk of this came in the 2020-2021 season. So that that's the, the post-COVID season. Um, like we're, uh, with the different divisions. Mm-hmm. Where he played 31 of his career 41 games. He's played six and two games since. Uh, in the subsequent two seasons, including this one. So it, it, it's like, 
all right, I mean, I, I don't trust essentially anything in the data. I think this is a question for, like, pro scouts ready to analyze him. Yeah. Um, and, and I do think, to a large extent, probably, if you want any sort of reasonable sample, you do have to actually go back to, like, his draft. Yeah, this is right. the thing. If you want people talking about Connor Timmons, the chatter that tells you about his playing caliber is mostly a couple of years old because mm-hmm. a lot of it since has been how will he return from injury um, and stuff like that. Now, Scott Wheeler at The Athletic did what I thought was a good introductory piece to Timmons. Um, he talked about how he's followed the player and his general impression of him. Uh, you know, his, his, his work at the top of the offensive zone was well thought of. He also said, look, Timmons came back on a conditioning stint and played in the AHL, and he looked like a guy who was not up to speed which is entirely natural and it's fine, but it also means our expectations for how he will do in the NHL should be really modest. Um, He hasn't made it into a game with the Leafs yet. I wouldn't be surprised if he plays tomorrow night against the Detroit Red Wings, uh, in which case he would be cycling in for Mac Hollowell on that third pairing with Victor Mete. It seems like as good a time as any. Hollowell was one of the few Leafs players who didn't have maybe the greatest night last night, so I don't think that his roster spot is uh, guaranteed to him by any means. You know, we'll see, I guess is what we're saying. It's the kind of move that I think makes a lot of sense. Sure up. It's not a game-changer move, and I think that if you're looking at the Leafs' larger strategy, it's to add to the pile, but the Leafs aren't making a big defense upgrade right now, I don't think. I think mm-hmm. they're looking at this and they're saying, we have to weather the storm, but eventually we are going to get Rowley and Brody back. And I would recommend that they focus on acquiring scoring forwards because I still think that's what this team needs. I think that's a pretty fair assessment. I mean, we covered this a bit last week. The Leafs look better on the team level defensively than offensively. And, you know, we, we've quetched a lot about oh, our bottom six can't score, our bottom six can't score. That's largely true. Um, but they can't actually defend, and we probably don't talk about that enough. Yeah, and after games where you shut down the Pittsburgh Penguins, who are still, after all this time, a really good offensive team. Um, Crosby and Malkin are good hockey players to this day. And yeah, we saw a good performance. We saw a good performance against Minnesota. Um Four stretches against the Devils, they kind of hung on for dear life, but still, they won. Uh, yeah, so I I think there's a lot that's positive to take away. I'm just saying in the macro perspective, though, of what this team should be doing. Yeah, shore up the defense for now. Let's hang on for dear life. But when this team has to say, okay, what gets us to the top tier again? It's probably more scoring, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking of more scoring, mm-hmm. we kind of expected more of it from Austin Matthews, didn't we? Yes, we did. Um, and that's a reflection of the absolutely insane bar that he set for himself by scoring 60 goals last year and winning the Hart Trophy. So to be clear, it's not like he's bad now. It's that we're grading him by the standard of, are you one of the best two players on the planet? And... This year, he hasn't quite been there, and it's mostly, so far as we can tell, a shooting slump. Pretty much. I mean, I think there's been lots of talk about how Matthews doesn't look the same way. I saw Justin Bourne tweet that Matthews isn't actively bad or anything. It's just the absence of the special plays that we are so used to seeing. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something where it is, as I said, you know, when talking about Holmberg, you have to separate, okay, how much... Do I like this guy versus based on what he's doing versus the fact that like just bad things haven't happened when he's on the ice and I'm like mentally crediting that to him. Mm-hmm. With Matthews, it's it's the same thing in inverse, right? I I think to my eye, he's been slightly sloppier with the puck this year in goal scoring chances. Like I, I but I might just notice that because I'm like, oh, I haven't seen a Matthews, you know, wrister that just goes straight by the goalie's ear in a while. Mm-hmm. And as far as we can tell from like the measurable data. Matthews kind of looks pretty similar to how he's he's always looked in almost every facet except his ability to put the puck behind the goalie. Yes. So yesterday against the, the um, Penguins was his first 
wrist shot goal at 5v5 this year. Yes. Which is astounding in game 23. Yeah, like that's not what you associate with Austin Matthews as having those long balls. The goal he scored was what you expect. Um, He was in the high slot and he rifled it. Um, I want to say a couple of things before we embark on this. Um, So much of this is determined by did the puck go in? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's very easy to start finding reasons why the puck isn't going in that aren't randomness. And we have to allow for the possibility that maybe it's just bounces. That can happen for 20 games at a time. The first 20 games of last season, Matthews was not actually scoring at that heroic rate either. Yes, I I, I remember this because like I, I gave him, I think, an A- minus in our half halfway grade simply because like his scoring at that point had only crept up to like slightly above expected or like around expected and not like significantly yeah. higher. Mm-hmm. And then he went supernova and scored all of the goals forever. And so I think it's worth noting, you know, we're grading on the superstar standard, which is all of the goals forever. And it may make us overly reactive to any kind of decline. Like this is a guy who's near a 40 goal pace even after a bit of a downturn. And as much as we say, okay, he doesn't look right. Well, how he looks is determined by how often the puck goes in. Right. So So, that's coloring our thinking. And I just want us to be aware of that. Yeah. So just to, I guess, put some numbers on this. um, Matthews this year has scored uh, four, five on five goals from seven and a half, five on five expected goals. Mm -hmm. In the three years prior, he scored, uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but I think it was something like, uh, it was something like, uh, let's see, like 90, uh, let me just put up the numbers, actually. This is this is riveting radio, but give me one second. Um, it was 96 expected goals on 60, sorry, 96 goals on 60 expected goals. So over one and a half times. This is over the past three years at five on five. Right. So if you were shooting like the Austin Matthews we've come to know and love, instead of those seven and a half at 5v5, um, sorry, on those seven and a half expected, instead of four goals, he would have 10 or 11. And yes. suddenly his whole sat line looks different. And we're not having this conversation at all, obviously. It just sa- it's just to say, this is about shooting, primarily. Right. And uh, his individual expected goal rate is basically the same uh, this year as it was in, in, in years prior. Actually, it's slightly higher this season. Yeah. And, you know, Matthews and Marner got broken up for a stretch earlier in the season. The puck was not going for them. We were talking about Michael Bunting is slumping. We were talking about this line isn't connecting the way that it used to. By expected goals, that line was killing it. Mm-hmm. But they went into a shooting slump and the puck went in against them. I'm not saying they didn't do anything wrong. I'm saying that the puck going in is always going to be a big, big weight on the scales in terms of what you remember for them. So the question is, is something different that's causing Austin Matthews to miss shots and to take him away from being this absolute offensive killer that we've come to know, or is this just kind of crazy bounces? And some of it is bounces. I think undeniably you can wonder though, is some of it earned? And Mm -hmm. you know, this is the, we're having this conversation after a night where he had three points, just throwing that out there. So well, I, I, yeah. I guess the, the other hilarious thing is, like, we're talking about Matthews. Like, oh, man, he hasn't been that great this year. He's a 60% goals for uh, percentage. Yeah. <laughs> and his it's, it's not undeserved, either. His expected goals percentage is also, it's 59%, right? Yeah. So it, it's, we're really, like, you know, picking out moles on a supermodel here. Yeah, this is, like, pretty unforgiving. And it's because... This team, to be its very best self, counts on Austin Matthews to be a destroyer of worlds. Um, the question is always going to be injury, and that's something that's hard to diagnose for a, from a distance. It is weird. Like, yeah, I feel like we would have heard about some injury at this point. Like it, last year, it wasn't when Matthews has been struggling with injury before. It's not like the team keeps it like super, super, super quiet, and like no one has been able to figure it out. Well, you get those quotes that allude to things like, okay, everyone's playing through bumps and bruises. Mm. You know, um, we think we can manage it. You hear all of these things. And 
This season, we haven't heard anything like that. Really, we're inferring an injury from the fact that we aren't seeing those gunshot goals go in, where he just rifles it and it's in the net before anyone knows what happened. Um, I, Again, I can't tell the difference between this and an entirely luck-based shooting slump from where I'm sitting. And my eyes want to tell me that there has been something a little off at times with him. But your eyes can't count, for one thing. And I, I'm i not at the point where I can throw out the possibility that this is all PDO. Yeah, and, and to be fair, like... I, I say this a lot, especially as it relates to our top four players, where... I, I do think it's unfair to blame them for, for example, goaltenders shooting the bed when they're on the ice mm-hmm. uh, in larger samples. I don't think it's unfair to blame is not the right word, but to like say, you know, we are paying this person a lot of money because they are supposed to be quote unquote slump proof in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, they are supposed to be someone who scores at a very, very high rate, who makes 5% shots, 8% shots. It means 8% shots, 12% shots, right? Yeah. That's why we pay Austin Matthews a lot of money. That's why, I mean, even despite even if the slump continues through the rest of the season, we probably present him an offer on July first next year to make him the highest paid player in the league. Yep. Right, yeah, and it's it's absolutely. because we think okay, this guy can do that. He hasn't done that this year. He does deserve like that does deserve to be like a demerit on his play. But in terms of projecting going forward, like maybe we should revise our estimates down for how good of a shooter he is. Maybe goaltenders have adjusted to him in some way. But they're like I, I I Matthews has such a long streak of being a ridiculously good shooter mm-hmm. that it feels hard to believe that he has suddenly cratered into being a significantly below average. Yeah, like this guy has been playing on our team now for like six years. You'd think if goaltenders would have adjusted, they they or could have adjusted in such a dramatic way, they would have done it by now. I could buy that adjustments would like tick him down slightly, but not to this level. Yeah, um, I'm just not at the point where I can rule out that this is luck. Uh, obviously, you know we need him. If it's not luck, it's a problem for us because our team is premised on we have absolute superstars, and John Tavares has played at a superstar level. Um, or at least at his best version of himself. And, and Marner has been uh, phenomenal mm-hmm. as well in, in, in recent, uh, in, in the last month, really. I, I, know, I know people talk about his point streak, which is like, cool, but whatever. I do not really care about point streaks that much. It's fun. It's good. Yeah. But yeah, it's like, it's... But I mean, yeah. just on a shift-to-shift basis, Marner has been so strong. And I, I think... You know, both his assist for the Homeburg goal yesterday is just like such a quintessential Marner play. He is such a good four checker despite his mm-hmm. stature. Yeah, like very aggressive. And uh, I think it was Chris Letang who was mad that Marner spun him around. Yeah. And eh. if you're getting spun around by Mitch Marner, I think that that's a, that's a skill problem right there. That's on you. Yeah, sorry, man. Um, but yeah, I mean, like Mar- Marner, he's like a bloodhound. He just sniffs out the puck. Yeah, and like he has the instincts to make a pass under pressure um, that a lot of players don't have. Like, there's a window that opens that's half a second wide, and he gets through it. Um, yeah. I don't know. Like, we have, have talked about that fucking contract to death. Um, it's worth noting when he's playing really well. Right now, he's the team's MVP mm-hmm. um, for my money. And, yeah, he's been in, insanely good. So, yeah, I, I think with the Matthews thing, there's nothing I can really prescribe to fix it or to do anything about it. If he has an injury, then, you know, you hope he rehabs it. Um, this team can't afford to have him miss a ton of time, but you want him in the best possible shape. If this isn't injury-based, and again, we haven't really heard anything, then I think it's just a matter of waiting and seeing and hoping that it works itself out. And if he's overthinking it, you know playing books on tape where he hears about how great he is. But yeah, uh, my expectation is that Austin Matthews is going to be just fine. So, yeah, I, I'm that, that, that's, that's where I, that's where I land. Um, that's where I land as well. Like, I think 
the most extreme thing we should do with this is like maybe just revise our estimates of how good a shooter Matthews is from plus x percent to like plus x percent minus you know epsilon or something like that like maybe he's a little bit worse as a shooter than we expect him to be i love it when you talk algebra all right um, um but i don't i don't think he has gone to being an average shooter or or, or below that I, I i would find it really really unlikely and i think over the course of the season i would still I, like I, I think he'll he'll score it closer to a 50 goal pace from here than a 40 goal pace yeah also like if he were someone else at this point, I would say, okay, the Rocket Richard's probably going to be really tough. But he's Austin Matthews. I do not think he is out of that running at all. Mm-hmm. So, we'll see. Um, so, this week, in a fun uh, change of pace, it wasn't the Toronto Maple Leafs fans complaining about refereeing. It was the fans of teams that played us. Mm. Um, there was a lot of anger about different things. The most prominent one was uh, that game against the New Jersey Devils where there were three ostensible goals that were called back um, for the Devils. In a game that ended 2-1, you can see why the Devils might be a bit upset in the course of also a very long winning streak where they haven't otherwise lost. It has to... Okay, so I'm going to allow something off the top here. The Devils probably outplayed the Leafs on that night. Mm. Like, mm. It is what it is. Um, that said, there's been some chatter about, you know, the usual stuff about the league offices are in Toronto and they review them there and it's all rigged or something like that. And I am here to tell you that that is bullshit and nonsense from the haters. Uh, I think all three of those no goals calls were legit under the rules. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that and the rules in general. I'm going to start by saying I'm indebted to Down Goes Brown, who, in addition to being a really funny hockey writer, also has sort of taken up a secondary role as goalie interference analyst, which was a void that I think needed to be filled. Um, he had an article on this at The Athletic that you should read. It was good. And I mostly agree with everything he said. But I thought we might gloss a little bit on that. We're also going to talk about Matt Murray's supposed habit of knocking the, the uh, post off its moorings to kill offensive plays. So, yeah, this will be a fun journey into cheating. Um, on the first goal against, uh, that was called back um, for the New Jersey Devils, Nathan Bastion is in the crease and impairs Matt Murray's movement within it. Their skate blades actually bump against each other while Murray is trying to stretch out, and then the puck goes in about a second later. Uh, that's cut and dried goalie interference. Full stop. I don't think the Devils had a case here. And I actually think it was dumb of them to challenge this because if you impede the goalie's motion in the crease and it's a no goal call on the ice, you are going to have almost no chance of getting that flipped over. Um, Obviously there's a little bit of gray area on that one. I thought this one was really cut and dried. Yeah. I think one of the biggest misunderstanding or the biggest, like I guess rule about goaltender interference is basically just, if you impede the goalie in their crease, it is goaltender interference, kind of regardless of whatever else happens. Yes, they have to be able to move freely in their crease to make saves. And that actually covers like most goaltender interference calls. Yes. Goaltender interference is at times kind of fuzzy and hard to understand, but a whole lot of it gets a whole lot clearer when you remember that basic rule. Goalie is in the crease. Goalie can't be impeded from making the saves. And even fairly minimal disruptions to their ability to move in that area are enough to overturn apparent goals against. That's not new. And that's actually pretty clear in the language of the rule. It gets messier in certain situations, especially outside the crease. This one was not, I think, ambiguous. And I don't think the Devils have a complaint here at all. Uh, Moving to the second one, Thomas Tatar bumps into Matt Murray while he is out of the crease. He's playing the puck behind the net. Um, Murray gets spun around. The Devils recover the puck, and they shoot into basically an empty net as Murray scrambles to regain position. So the question is basically, does this bump, which takes Murray out of the play, suffice to overturn the goal? And it did. Um, I think that this is a little trickier, even though, as a practical matter from how the game works, 
I think you had to overturn this. Yeah, so I think the the big thing is Tatar doesn't really make a huge effort or much of an effort of all to get out of the way. Mm-hmm. It looked like a kind of accidentally on purpose minor bump. Mm-hmm. And kind of a critical thing is the player, the onus is on the player to like make a, to try to do what they can essentially to get out of the way of the goaltender, to not yeah. impede the goaltender. I feel like if Tatar actually like contorts his body and still just happen and like tries to get out of the way, but still happens to clip Murray, he probably stands. Yeah, it's the kind of thing. It's almost like a um, like framing a pitch. I think in this baseball. Was the, this was the fuzziest call. Of the three. Yeah, and you have something closer, even though visually it looks kind of spectacular because Tatar knocks him over in open eyes, and you look, oh, you say, okay, he had no chance. Mm-hmm. But Tatar has a case saying, look, I'm allowed to skate around the ice. The goalie is out of his crease, so his protections are not the same as they are in the crease. Mm-hmm. Now, to be clear. There aren't no protections. The rule explicitly says it's not open season on goalies when they're out of the crease. And I think that's the substance of what happens here because Tatar can say, look, I was going about my business on the forecheck. Goalie comes out, you know, he got in my way, incidental contact happens. If you're too forgiving towards that, it gets really easy for attacking players to disrupt goalies anytime they leave the net. Um... It's not that hard to make this look accidentally on purpose. And so in cases where it's kind of on the line here, I can see why the refs err on the side of saying, no, you can't bump him that way. Um, I want to make no revision to my optic stated belief that we should make it harder for goalies to play the puck because that's boring. Um, <laughs> don't let them go below the goal line as far as I'm concerned. I don't care. Um... But yeah, you can see why that one was called off. I think, yeah, the Devils have something closer to an argument here, but yeah. Uh, on the third goal, there is a distinct kicking motion, and that's against the rules. Eric Halla kicks the puck in off a Leaf player, and it doesn't matter that it was deflected, and again, that's in the rule. Um, I'm indebted again to Down Goes Brown for pointing that particular detail out. Uh, again, this one was really obvious. Like, he kicked that thing. He mm-hmm. was trying to kick it to a teammate so that they could hit it in with their stick, which would have counted. But yeah, as long as the rule is what it is for distinct kicking motion, they don't have a case. Um, I think the rule should be different. I think you should be allowed to kick the puck in as long as you keep your blade on the ice. And Hala came pretty close. And if the rule were like that, I'm sure he could have done it that way. But that's a rule that doesn't exist right now. And so as it is, again, I don't think that this is really arguable. It's too bad for the Devils that three of these strung up together, and that's why there's such outrage and why they threw a bunch of shit on the ice at the end of the evening. But bottom line is, I think all of these are the right call. And yeah, I'm a homer, but I'm also correct about this, so whatever. (laughs) Well, I also think we have enough, we've built up enough credibility to like, with how often we complain about Leafs fans bitching about refs. (laughs) I hope so. Yeah. I don't think we're particularly biased when it comes to this sort of thing. I think we like actively try to say how, like how could how, like how could this actually be the correct call against the Leafs? Because yeah. it's very it's very easy to work yourself into the situation of you know, I want this team to win and therefore all the calls against them are are, are bad and unfair. Yeah. And like I think in this case like I I honestly don't believe that the refs got it wrong any of these times. And I think the refs were uncomfortable with this. Hmm. obviously with the third one they called good goal on the ice um and you know who knows what they saw but like they, they don't they don't like the perception that they've overturned three goals all the same way in one evening it's just a matter of that's kind of how it worked out um and i get you know the devil's fans were were upset they're they're having a good thing going and all that sort of thing but yeah uh there is something else that was going on and it recurred in the game against the Minnesota Wild. And it's a complaint against Matt Murray, who, by the way, had a terrific week. Um, it's that he knocks the net off to kill opposing offensive possessions. Okay, so this is a little bit more ambiguous. The refs can uh, give a delay of game call in these situations if they think the goalie is doing it on purpose. To a certain extent, these things can happen by accident. 
They happened a lot to Matt Murray. Um, some of these, I think, were kind of a function of how he's playing his post. Uh, Mike McKenna, Daily Faceoff, had a good article talking about how in what's called reverse vertical horizontal position, where Murray's trying to steal against the post, he presses his chin and his shoulder against the post. And so when he pushes off, which is what that position enables you to do after stealing in the post, um, he's more likely to knock it out. And I think you could sort of cynically say, look, Murray is positioning himself this way because he thinks that it's good goaltending. But if sometimes the net comes off when there's a dangerous play developing against him, that's not the end of the world to him. You know what I mean? Like, it can be not intentional in a specific case, but it can be a consequence of how he's playing the position that he's kind of okay with. You know what I mean? And I think that that's how you can end up in a situation where you can look at each play and say, I don't know if he meant to do that. But if it keeps happening long enough, refs are going to start saying, okay, we got to start giving this guy penalties. And I think eyes are going to be on him at this point. So, yeah. I will say the moral outrage was a bit much to me. Like, this stuff has been happening since there were goaltenders. Mm -hmm. um, and we can't have hard-fixed posts into the ice because then when skaters hit them, coming in on the rush, they will be badly injured. So there has to be some give that they can um, eject from their moorings. But yeah, I, I think, like, I get why people are mad at Murray on this one. I think that if he keeps doing it, he's going to start racking up delay of game penalties because the Minnesota Wild coach Gene Evison complained rather loudly. Um, but, like, this is ordinary gamesmanship to me. I don't think that it's that un unheard of in hockey practice. So, like, yeah, but whatever, I guess is my bottom line there. Uh, yeah, I think I think this falls into like the standard, the standard gamesmanship bucket of, of of things that happen. If they called a penalty on one of these, I wouldn't have been too upset. Yeah, you see the case, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, like again, the truth is is that um, there's actually like a funny concept in civil law that I'm going to bring over here because, gosh, it's just so exciting to talk about. But when you play a sport, you're consenting to the risks of the sport, and you're also consenting to ordinary infractions that occur. Like, there's a certain amount of borderline role-playing that can be expected, and you take on that risk in a sense of uh, civil liability when you agree to play the sport. I think that that also sort of applies with rules where it's like, Yes, you can say that this is against the rules and the ref should call it, and that's fine. I'm not disputing the right to complain. But there is this tone that it's this unheard of benefit that the Leafs are getting because uh, the league is in their pocket, which, boy, howdy, you've got some explaining to do about the entire last 50 years mm -hmm. uh, if you want to make that case as opposed to just this week. Um, I think that this is just like... A little bit of ordinary borderline stuff. It's fine. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Okay. Uh, anything else we want to cover? Uh, th was there a bad take you wanted to to touch on? Um, you know there are so many, and yet we do want to. <laughs> we saw that uh, tweet that went around calling McDavid McSelfish. Which, first of all, that's not even a joke. Like, it's just saying Mick and then a different word instead of his name. Right. It's it's <laughs> it's not the most creative thing in the world. Yeah. Like, this was coming from an Islanders reporter who is uh, respected, but uh, I don't know. It was it was a very dumb tweet, but we were like, do we want to go in on that? So we're, we're going to leave it alone. I was just fascinated by just the total failure to make anything make sense there. Um. There was briefly one article that I, I could have mentioned, I guess, um, at The Athletic. I don't think that this was egregious, but it was a symptom of something that I think happens weirdly a lot in Edmonton. And the author in this case was Alan Mitchell, who writes under the term low tide, which is a pun on Kevin Lowe and also the general way that the Oilers have been in the last uh, 15 years. 
Um, but he was evaluating Ryan Nugent Hopkins. And he pointed out that since the start of 2020, when Ryan Nugent Hopkins is playing with Leon Dreisaitl, uh, they have a goal share of 50. So they've been on for as many goals for as against. And their expected goals is 45.6. So underwater. And Mitchell sums this up by saying, Nuge with Dreisaitl delivers slightly less impressive results. That's compared to McDavid. But any NHL team would take those totals on the line facing tough opposition. And no, they wouldn't. Yeah. If, if you get 50% of the goals from your top six, or from one of your top six lines, like, that's not a good thing. That makes you an average team, sort of by definition. Actually, below average, because most teams' top six are, like, above 50%, and then their bottom six are below. Yes, and in Edmonton, it's often the case that they're far below. They had a bit of a resurgent under Jay Wordcroft last year, but this year they've had some troubles once again. And... Yeah, a line with Leon Dreisaitl on it, centering it, combined with another top six caliber player, which RNH supposedly is, they should be outscoring their competition if you want to be a serious contender. And that's... Low Tide is much less guilty of this than many of the more traditional Edmonton media members. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't want to go in too hard on him. But I find it kind of curious, the grading on a curve that goes on with Edmonton, where it's like, you have the best player in the world in Connor McDavid. You have another, at the least, top 15 forward, probably better, and Leon Dreisaitl. The expectation for you shouldn't be, we're hanging in there. Even though that's what it's been. You know, they have 11 wins and 10 losses this season. Um, despite McDavid scoring at nearly two points a game. For most of the start of the season. Right. I don't understand how the bar is this low at this point in time. Like, I, I don't even know what else to say about it there. Like, it's just, it's not good enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you want to be a contender. You, we talked about, we're like analyzing Austin Matthews when he's dominating expected goals and only scoring at like a 38 goal pace. And you can say that we're being a bit silly and Toronto minded there. But it's also like, yeah, because we're trying to evaluate, can this team win a cup? Why isn't that the bar in Edmonton? Ever. Um, I, like, I guess expectations have just been reduced by how much the team has sucked. But yeah, anyway, I, I just, I found that as like a little oddity, hmm. I guess. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I, I didn't have any bad takes to, to pillory this week. We'll, we'll, we'll come back strong on this front in the near future. I'm confident that we'll get some, some takes to, to warm ourselves with during the, the holiday season. Yes, I think that there will be more bad takes in the future. Awesome. All right, so thank you all for listening. You can catch all of mine and Fuleman's work at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Fuleman. We'll see you next week.